He can't hear me. He doesn't hear me. Tell him I can hear. Tell him I can hear this. Keith, you can hear me, right? Can you hear me? Tell him I can hear him. <laughs> so I don't know what the heck happened. I, things were going uh, pretty smoothly on the selection show recording this afternoon. We got through halfway. We got halfway through two full brackets, uh, working on the third bracket. And then it was like, hey, we can't manage to keep your Skype call intact any longer. And they said, well, okay, so we'll call you on the phone and we'll do it that way. And I never got a phone call. And then it was like, they tried to Skype audio me and that didn't work either. And so we had a really, really short selection show, which people were probably happy about anyway. Yeah, I guess they just want to see the bracket. They don't want to hear you talk. We, uh, we, make, we make it through an hour of Skype every week or actually much more than an hour. Just an hour gets recorded. Um, so I think it probably wasn't on your end. I'm hoping not. Um I don't know what that was about. It was uh, it's everything's been kind of strange once again this year with uh, selection shows in the NCA, but uh, it is what it is. Shall we do the thing? Let's. Football fans, it's now time for the D3football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division III football. That's the level with the non-scholarship schools. You know, where the, the ones where the students have to go to class. Actual classes, challenging majors. And, and yet somehow we can handle missing five weeks of class time for our 32-team tournament. Unlike those other guys. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, he's been here since uh, we started getting automatic bids. Keith, do I align you in the south or the east bracket? Ooh, uh, first exposed to Division Three football in Somerville, Massachusetts at a Tufts game and recruited out of high school in the Philadelphia area in South Jersey. That's totally east region. But I'm a Randolph-Macon alum, and that's below the Sweet Tea line, so south region it is. Is the Sweet Tea line near the Waffle House line? Uh, maybe. I tend to think the South starts somewhere around Fredericksburg, not the Mason-Dixon line, because Northern Virginia definitely has the feel of a more cosmopolitan, diverse area, while Richmond, the one-time capital of the Confederacy, still has Monument Avenue. Uh, yeah, hopefully not for much longer. But yeah, when I lived out there, it was Frederick, Maryland, rather than Fredericksburg that probably counted more. But now Frederick, I think, is even more of a D.C. suburb than it used to be. Instead of uh, talking about 10 years ago, let's talk about last year at this time. We were waxing poetic about the bracket. Hi, uh, court reporter, can I have the transcript read back? No? All right, let's do it this way. This is a great day for Division Three football, in my opinion. Uh, it sounds like getting an extra flight in the football bracket might be something that's more than a one-time thing. And that's what we got this year, too. But uh, now, Keith, I guess I'd give this bracket more like a B grade rather than an A. And uh, considering we got in all the at-large teams that we predicted, we predicted nine of the 16 first-round matchups correctly, that means I'm either really tough to please, not impossible, uh, but I really, really wanted to see them put Mary Harden-Baylor and Harden-Simmons a little bit further away from each other in the bracket. Here, what's happening is that the NCAA is banking on Harden-Simmons winning in order to save them money on the second round. A hope that, frankly, is ludicrous considering they don't even think Harden-Simmons is a higher seed. Pat, I made notes to myself, which you did not see, and I also gave the committee a grade, a, a B-. minus. Look, uh, this bracket is nice, and this tournament might turn out to have some major surprises. Mary Harden-Baylor has a tough path, and no Blake Jackson to bail it out. Mountain Union didn't exactly cruise past John Carroll on Saturday, and Wisconsin Oshkosh's defense isn't as nearly as dominant as it was last season. 
We might remember the last road to Salem as a great one, but as brackets go, this is much more a 19-yard field goal than a 65-yard touchdown. Right-footed kick! Good! It's good, but we might have been a little spoiled in recent years and got our hopes up for a bracket that met all of our expectations. This one meets a lot of them. It got the important things right, the correct at-large teams and one seeds. The In the Huddle crew, I'm sure, is giddy over that quadrant with eight East Region teams in it. And both DelVal and Brockport made it possible with such great seasons. The WIAC only had one playoff team when there was no unbeaten MIAC, CCIW, or Northwest Conference team that had to be accommodated as an alternate one seed. So it all works. But I still come away feeling like a bracket that could have been outstanding was just pretty good. Yeah, I, I don't love the lack of creativity in the lower in the lower right-hand bracket, for example. I'm all for giving DelVal that number one seed. They definitely deserve it. But this is the first time since 2009 that we've had an entire bracket that just has one region's teams in it. And this part is definitely a step backwards. Especially when contrasted with the mix in the other brackets. Four South Region and four West Region teams in the upper right with Mary Harden Baylor. On the lower left with Mountain Union, you have four north, three south, and a south-turned-east team in Frostburg State. And in the upper left with uh, UW Oshkosh, it was half west region teams and half from the north. St. John's and St. Thomas are split, and a north-central Illinois-Wesleyan rematch could only happen in the semifinals. The mix in three-quarters of the bracket is really good. Well, you know, I actually I feel a little bit better about the bracket after uh, you ran down those other three. I guess that's the good thing about this bracket. We're, we're really down to debating individual map matchups and the placement of those matchups in the bracket. But it's it's still maddening to me that the NCAA, at least I hope it's the NCAA and not the committee, uh, thinks that it's okay to eliminate two of the top eight teams by the round of 16. This just should not be necessary. Yeah, Harden-Simmons, Linfield, and Mary Harden-Baylor are used to this by now, but just because we've seen it before and have grown accustomed to it doesn't mean it's any less in need of fixing. Now, it's not my money to spend and flying 58 players plus team personnel across the country is not cheap. Gate receipts don't cover it, so I understand. But we've got three of the top eight teams in the country crammed into one pod, and whichever team gets out might have to face fourth-ranked St. Thomas. That should not be the best we can do. When you talk about the stuff that happened before we got to the bracket, at least in general on Saturday, the day went pretty well without a whole ton of surprises. For example, uh, early on, Springfield went up big on MIT. They were up 29-0, 20 minutes in the game, so we knew Pool B wasn't going to change. Delaware Valley dispatched with Widener by the end of the third quarter, and uh, until the Case-Carnegie Mellon game needed like three extra endings, we were looking at a pretty straightforward day. Yeah, with DePaul being the only team you projected earlier in the week that lost on Saturday, the spots that teams like Center, Franklin and Marshall, Concordia Moorhead, UW Lacrosse, and Wheaton needed to materialize never did open up. There were a remarkable number of 7-2 and two opponents that teams in line for playoff spots had to vanquish, but from Illinois Wesley and the Case Western Reserve, the teams that had to get the job done did. And it must have made selection Saturday night less about the teams to put in the field for the committee and more about matching them up. Yeah, it certainly would have given them the opportunity to be a little more creative with the bracketing. Um, you know, Keith, uh, DePaul, of course, we projected them earlier in the week because they were the higher seed. I'm not sure that I really ever thought that DePaul would beat Wabash, or maybe I was hoping that Wabash would clear things up for the North Region Committee, which has acted kind of strange all season. But we might not talk about this uh, later in the podcast. Uh, DePaul loses the Monon Bell game 22-21. Wabash fakes a field goal twice on the same drive and goes on to score a touchdown. Yeah, actually, that's a um, probably should have been a hidden highlight or a double take or something because that's 
one of those things that almost uh, I, I can't. I mean, they said it immediately on the broadcast. People talked about it as it was happening uh, on Twitter. And then we, we thought about it again today. I don't know if I've ever seen or heard of a team that faked uh, two field goals on the same drive, converted them both, and, and by did, the way. And didn't score on either of them. Yeah, and <laughs> that may not have been the most uh, amazing or clip-worthy play from that game because the two-point conversion that ended up being the, the winning points for Wabash, uh, if you look at it in real time in fast motion, it looks like he clearly scores. And then there's a still circulating on Twitter, which looks like uh, the receiver's knee is down short of the goal line before he even catches the ball. So um, add that chapter to to one of the great rivalries in D3, and uh, neither team gets to add a game to its season by uh, by playing the playoffs, even though they both finish 8-2. Skylar Nerig, the, uh, the kicker who picked up his own block kick and ran it in for a touchdown a few weeks back, then was also the guy who... Uh, got mm-hmm. uh, caught uh, with other uh, Wabash players trying to steal the bell. They had put in all those fake field goals this week because they thought that Nerig might not be allowed to play. And then he was allowed to play, and they decided they were going to use them anyway. Can't take him with you into the offseason. <laughs> Indeed not. Uh, Keith, I'm happy to tell you also that uh, this week's podcast is sponsored by D3 Talent. And this is a new initiative that we at D3Sports.com have put together to spotlight the Division Three student-athlete and help boost the identity of Division Three student-athletes in general. This isn't something that we've done alone at all either. I have to tell you guys about uh, Sam Borst-Smith. He's an All-American point guard from the University of Rochester, now a recent graduate and working in the advertising field, and uh, brought the outline of this concept to us this fall. And uh, I'm going to quote him at length here for a few seconds. This is what he says. This is his kind of uh, his elevator speech on this. Division three athletics is often underrated and overlooked. The unseen hours student-athletes put into balancing athletics and academics is second to none, emphasizing the mere pride, passion, and love they carry for their sport. Whether it's on or off the field, in the classroom, or working full-time, talent truly runs deep among current and former Division III student-athletes. Talent Runs Deep is a way of embracing successes among the respected student-athletes. Its mission is to nationally unite, enlighten public perception, and honor the dedication of Division III athletics. And so, Keith, to this end, we've kind of put some strategy around social media. You'll find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, promoting the great talent that's in Division III and that has come out of Division III. Uh, we have a great D3 talent store on fanraise.com that you can show your pride in D3 by purchasing T-shirts, sweatshirts, etc. You can customize them to your particular sport and also to your team colors. Uh, proceeds from that store really help our sites. So as you do your holiday shopping, holiday shopping at d3talent.thefanraise.com. But Keith, this has been a lot of work for us over the past few weeks, and uh, but I'm really excited by it. Yeah, as you should be, because... What's really I, I've always felt necessary for D3 is to, to sort of be proud of who it is and not chase um, recognition that that is given to uh, Division One programs. And those programs deserve it for completely different reasons. You know, they fill stadiums and they have by far the most uh, physically gifted athletes. What, what Division Three is, is, is something a little different. Uh, athletes who uh, still play for the love of the game, who... Uh, know that probably uh, their career, as to borrow the NCAA slogan, is going to they're going to go pro in something besides the sport that they play, and um, have to balance all that. You know, there I can, I have memories of 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 star players that I played with uh, leaving practice on Wednesday night because they have a science lab they have to get to, 
and you got to shower up and eat before you go to before you go to night class. And you have to take that class in the fall because that's the only time your small little school offers it. So I, I do think there's a way to kind of coalesce all that that pride around one slogan. And we've sort of been, you know, there it happened a little bit with with YD3. But I think uh, it's really great to uh, to have this now that we can all relate to because uh, it's not just football players, too. You know, it's it's across all the D3 sports. This is what uh, young men and young women uh, do with their time. You know, there's a sport that they love to play, they, that they're good enough to play at in college. They're also good enough uh, and smart enough to, to pursue something else. And the way to balance it is uh, is D3 schools. And, and that's something that we should be proud of and not necessarily try to chase someone else's recognition and try to be like them, but, but more be like ourselves and, uh, and be proud of it. I think Frosty Westering would have a phrase for that. But uh, before I deviate too far off into that, um, check out the stuff at uh, d3talent.thefanraise.com. Uh, tag your talent with the hashtag D3Talent for us to see. And that's whether it's on or off the playing surface, because we want to showcase the entirety of the Division Three student and student athlete. Keith, we're still going to do game balls in this particular podcast, and I'm giving my game ball to a punter. Hopefully people don't uh, drive off the road or fall off the treadmill or uh, spit out their coffee at the thought, but uh, that's my take because the St. John's punter really changed the dynamic of that game and buried Concordia Moorhead. Three times, Nafao and Anatoni pinned the Cobbers on the one, the two, and the six-yard line in the fourth quarter with punts of 50, 59, and 39 yards. No wind at his back. Uh, and this was just after Concordia had cut the lead to 10-3 on the last snap of the third quarter. Only on the final drive of those three did the Cobbers get even outside their own 25. But seriously, Keith, I've never heard a, a press box full of sports writers, and we really did have multiple people who fit that description at this game. I've never seen a group like that react to punts like this. So Nafal Anatoni, game ball, which um, I'm sure he'll promptly punt away. That's funny, Pat. That was a uh, basically, essentially, a play-in game between two eight and one teams, and uh, St. John's won that game, as you mentioned, ten three, and earned a Pool C playoff spot. Concordia Moorhead just on the outside looking in. For my game ball, Pat, if you can give yours to a punter, I can give mine to a guy who blocked a punt. Senior linebacker Zach Lyons came through for Case Western Reserve after Carnegie Mellon had begun to kneel out the clock for a win. Uh, Justin Fan scooped the block for a score, and Case won in overtime. It was a lot more convoluted than that, but the important part is that the Spartans are possibly out of the playoff field, and someone else, Wheaton, Center, Concordia, Moorhead, Franklin, and Marshall, is probably in, if not for an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty on Carnegie Mellon that kept the Tartans from being able to run the clock out. That happened on second down. There was only one timeout for Case Western Reserve, so the clock stopped with uh, 28 seconds left. Uh, Case calls its final timeout, and the block punt turns out to be a true holy crap moment. And it, uh, <laughs> even though it didn't win the game alone because Carnegie Mellon had to uh, kick the field goal, send it in overtime, and then both teams had the ball in overtime, it was a play that was exciting at the time. And then it had a domino effect felt far from Pittsburgh where the game was played. So that moment, that play by Zach Lyons, entirely game ball worthy. <laughs> Holy crap moment is right. 
Um, this this happens probably more than an hour, I think, after the um, after the St. John's Concordia game ended. It's just me and like two other people in the press box, and I'm I'm watching it because you know everything's hanging in the balance, and we thought the game was over, and thought the game was over, and it was just uh, it was nuts. Uh, really a a miraculous finish for Case that they're even in the field for us to talk about. Yeah, the, the way you, you you know it was crazy too is. Um, as Carnegie Mellon is getting this punt off, and, and again, this is a broadcast, you know, the D3 level broadcast, one camera angle, and um, it it the punt it looked like the, you know the camera moved as though there was a punt, and then all of a sudden you see the camera jerk back the other way, and and to me I said to myself, oh, they blocked it, and you know by that time there's eight. Case Western Reserve guys running toward the end zone, so it was an easy scoop and score. And uh, at the time, that gave Case a 34-31 lead. And then they did this crazy thing where, um, because they celebrated so hard, they had to kick off from the 20. They squib kicked it, so Carnegie Mellon takes over on the 40, and they only needed to gain like 15 yards to kick the game-tying field goal, send it into overtime. Case won it in overtime anyway, but it was just a, the craziest way to to finish a game, especially given the playoff implications, not just for the two teams uh, playing that that uh, game, but for the other teams that were hoping a spot would open up. Lots of people were watching that game, too, because uh, a lot of the other games were over. Um, since this is Election Sunday, we have a, a different set of categories to roll out. So Keith and I will discuss more about uh, Week 11 specifically later in the podcast. But uh, right now we're going to take a look at the 32 teams on the road to Salem and uh, more specifically the bracket that will take us there. So... Uh, while we'll have some quibbles, uh, let's start with what the committee got right. And I spent some time at the top of the podcast, you may remember, about uh, nine minutes ago, ranting about what I didn't like about this bracket. So let's talk about some of the other things. I liked, for example, uh, that they were willing to take Barry or Huntington and fly them out distant for the second round. It, it might not be where I would have flown them, but at least they moved them far out. Uh, I guess I could put a like on that, maybe not a love. Lots of likes in this bracket. A couple angries, a couple of ha-has, not a lot of loves. Are you speaking emoji? Um, it's, a, like, uh, face, it's Facebook reactions. Yeah, you know. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, I thought the committee got the right 32 teams. They got the right two teams in Pool B and the right five in Pool C. The right four number one seeds. They even ordered those seeds correctly. Rematches of the MIAC, CCIW, PAC, and NJAC teams for the five conferences that got two teams in appear unlikely. And as Unbalanced as this bracket looks when you zoom in on four team pods, when you step back, six of the top 12 teams are on one side of the bracket on the right side, and the other six take the the left-hand path to Salem. And before you say that uh, UW Oshkosh and Mount Union, two of the three dominant teams so far this season, got stuck on the same side in a potential semifinal meeting, the other dominant team that didn't get put on their side, that's Mary Harden-Baylor, which might have to play the fifth and fourth ranked teams in the country just to get to the quarterfinals. So even though the pods look crazy unbalanced, the committee maybe looks crazy like some foxes. Yeah, not crazy like George Foxes, not crazy like Red Foxes, not crazy like Fire Foxes. Uh, Never mind, let's move on. What the committee did not get right, uh, I do feel like I went pretty long earlier on what the committee did not get right. I didn't hold back much earlier, but one matchup I really thought we needed to see was Case Western Reserve versus Washington and Jefferson. It was definitely possible. We did a, uh, some work 
to make sure that happened in our projection. Maybe the pack doesn't deserve to have one team automatically advance or one team guaranteed to advance, but this was an opportunity for irony, which previous committees have embraced in first round matchups. Uh, these teams, as you may or may not know, didn't play in the regular season because the conference schedule didn't match them up, and the uh, selection committee could definitely have rectified that error. Yeah, you really did try to make that happen in the uh, in the projection. I bent over almost entirely backwards, let's put it that way. Yeah, the, the committee took advantage of the rare ability to split up the Texas teams and use two first-round flights when they could have gotten away with just one by sending uh, Chapman to Linfield. And yet, they didn't really take advantage of it at all. The Texas team still could face off in round two. Suppose Mary Harden-Baylor is the nation's best team and Harden-Simmons, a 17-7 midseason loser to UMHB, is second best. One of those two would be out by round two. Now, splitting up the Texas teams is a move that should draw praise, but it's not praiseworthy when you just fourth, force fifth-ranked Harden-Simmons to play at eighth-ranked Linfield and make the winner have to go through number one UMHB, just like you did last season. I mean, I guess they don't meet in round one, but the second first-round flight doesn't serve much purpose when it isn't used to help balance things. With so many top 10 teams crammed around UMHB and on the other side of the bracket, UW Oshkosh, forcing someone in Delaware Valley's bracket or Mountain Union, uh, their bracket, to, to go through the Cowboys would have been nice. But it's clear the NCAA can't risk having to pay for that many flights. It felt like we'd come a long way since the years of the UMHB Harden-Simmons automatic first-round game, but it turns out we haven't come that far at all. Indeed. Uh, and this seems like a good time to get the committee chair's take on this. Uh, our friends and colleagues, Frank Rossi and James Baker at In the Huddle, chatted with Darla Kirby. She's the Associate Athletic Director at uh, Mary Harden Baylor and the Selection Committee Chair, trying to get some insight on a few key questions regarding the bracket. Uh, here's an excerpt, and you can find the rest on our site, embedded on our bracket announcement page, or on In the Huddle's Facebook page. Darla, I... Uh... Some things jumped out to uh, some people, I'm sure, when these get uh, released ultimately. Uh, and uh, for us, uh, there was a, kind of an East-centric quadrant of this bracket that we noticed. Uh, there are nine teams from the East region uh, conferences that are in this uh, grouping. And uh, maybe we'll talk about Frostburg State in a little bit because obviously they had to land uh, via Pool C. Uh, but Take us through kind of, this is unique for us. Let me kind of back up as well as say, uh, as the NCAA's kind of gotten away from regionality in uh, the bracketing process over the last decade to 15 years or so, uh, we haven't seen, let's say, a well-confined East quadrant of a bracket like this. How did we land here? Was there some ability, did you feel, maybe to separate out some East teams, but it was avoided Kind of walk us through how the East lined up with eight out of nine teams in that bottom left or bottom right hand uh, bracket. Right. Uh, when I first saw the bracket this morning, that that was something different. I had not seen that before. But uh, what drives that, of course, is you do look at the rankings and want to pair according to the rankings if possible. Most of that is driven by geography. And when you have Hudson and you have Springfield up there, the upper northeast kind of limited who can travel there or where they can travel. So it all kind of dominoes from the teams on the outliers uh, parts of the country and how that drives the, the bracket. Kind of the blame Husson uh, mentality that some people have jokingly <laughs> said over the years. Yeah. Also, uh, there's another uh, kind of uh, geography regionality question uh, that kind of uh, comes up in what I would call the travel bracket or the upper right hand uh, bracket where you have uh, the Texas teams, including Mary, Har Mary Harden-Baylor, who uh, 
Obviously, congratulations to your uh, school on another great season uh, this season. Uh, a little bit of a struggle against East Texas Baptist uh, yesterday. But, hey, it wouldn't be 10 and 0 without a little bit of an interesting finish here and there. But uh, there, there is um, a team that played them very well named Harden Simmons. I think you've heard of them as well, uh, who could face them again in the second round. And some people would be disappointed, I think, to see that if it happens so early on. We, uh, they, rematches are something that some people don't like to see necessarily. And there's a lot of travel that's going to be going on in that top right bracket. And so some folks will say, Darla, why couldn't you put uh, Harden Simmons in the lower half of that bracket, for instance? What would your response be to them at that point? Well, we come back to the same thing. We try to uh, fix it where there's not as many flights because we are driven by the expense of flights. And if we had moved Harden Simmons and Linfield to another bracket, and that would have increased the air flights. And we're trying to keep those to a minimum if possible. So that's the reason, the same concept, the reason the East region and the lower right, uh, they're paired against each other. It's the same reason that you'll see the winner of Harden Simmons and Linfield play the winner of Mary Harden Baylor and Chapman. Another observation that I made that uh, perhaps, you know, fans who are looking to nitpick at things, you know, might say that, you know, hey, well, why is uh, Mary Harden Baylor having to play, you know, potentially Harden Simmons and St. Thomas on the way to uh, either quarterfinals or semifinal situation? Whereas, you know, Mount Union, who uh, while they also finished the season undefeated, they're not the defending national champions. Uh, you could say maybe they have an easier path. Um, that's obviously all sub subjective, uh, you know, and fans will be fanatics. <laughs> There's a reason why they're called that. Uh, but was it once again sort of the geography component factoring in to, to try to match up um, that, that lower left of the Mount Union bracket with some of these uh, teams such as you know, Wittenberg, Frostburg, Case Western, and so on? Um, I think Mount Union may disagree with you a little bit maybe. I think they'll think they have a very challenging bracket. I think they're going to be challenging games throughout each bracket and uh, depends on who you speak with as who uh, – bracket they would think would be the most difficult and granted being from Mary Harden Baylor I'm sure that I'm going to hear that we have the toughest bracket but I think that we would hear that from each region. <laughs> Fair enough. Coach Fredenberg is uh, on the phone for you right now probably. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Keith a team that played itself in or out in week 11 and uh, is our next category and the one team that definitely played itself out on Saturday has to be DePauw. They saved the North Region Ranking Committee in the process. DePaul was blocking Illinois Wesleyan from getting to the table. But on the field, DePaul and Wabash went toe-to-toe. -to -toe. It's just that uh, DePaul could not get enough done to get past the Little Giants. Uh, we mentioned the final score was a 22-21 in favor of Wabash. They got the bell back. And almost as importantly, I think, if you're a Wabash fan, is you get to keep your arch rival from going to the playoffs. Because so much attention was paid to to Case Western Reserve preserving its playoff shot with the block punt. One could have missed the other teams who played their ways in on Saturday. RPI trailed Union 14-13 for most of the second half until a score with just more than five minutes left gave it the 20-14 final margin. The engineers not only get to keep the Dutchman Shoes trophy, but not far away, Ithaca's Wahid Nabi was throwing six touchdown passes in the Cortica Jug game. The Bombers would have taken the Liberty League's playoff spot if Union had won, so RPI truly played its way into the field, earning a trip to Wesley in round one and the program's first playoff bid since 2007. Our next question is, what's the most intriguing thing in this bracket you think people might have missed? 
And uh, one of the most interesting things to me, Keith, is that there are a couple of places where higher seeded teams playing at home lack playoff experience. And maybe there's an opportunity for a veteran group to catch a team getting a slow start. Uh, I think Monmouth at Trine fits that bill where Monmouth is the experienced team. They were the playoffs last year. Trine hasn't been since 2010. Uh, similarly, Johns Hopkins at W&J, Huntington at Barry, maybe even you could throw uh, Husson at Springfield into that mix. Those are definitely places and matchups where something unusual might happen in the first round. Ooh, and if it does, we'll uh, we'll rewind this part and and point out your prescience. My most intriguing thing, as first pointed out to us by Adam Turr, who wrote the midseason column about East Region teams' lack of success in breaking through to Salem, the East is guaranteed a semifinalist. That region actually has nine teams in, the South seven, and the other two regions have eight. I also think there's more fodder for those who say Mount Union traditionally has an easier path to Salem than other elite programs. While that lower left quadrant features seven teams among its eight ranked in the final D3Football.com poll, which we might remind you is not part of playoff selection criteria, only Mount Union among those teams is ranked in the top 10. The other quadrants have four, three, and two top 10 teams uh, each. The Purple Raiders are on the side of the bracket where UW Oshkosh could stand in the way of the Stag Bowl, but they're a good bet to play into the semifinals again like they have every year since 1994. We like to talk about the best first-round matchup that's on the bracket, and Keith, for me, the best first-round game is probably the one I'll get to watch the most of, and that's Harden-Simmons at Linfield. Uh, At least, you know, it's our West Coast game, our 3 p.m. Eastern time game, and it's one that should be a great one rather than a blowout. Both teams are significantly different from when they faced Mary Harden Baylor early on in the season. And uh, I'm interested in getting a, a good look at, uh, for example, Wyatt Smith, the freshman quarterback for Linfield, and just getting an opportunity to decompress after the rush of the previous three or four hours. Well, one of those games that will give you that rush is uh, the one I like for best first round game. That's St. John's at North Central. The Johnnies played the best first-round game last season, the one with the disputed ending against UW-Platteville, and they're poised to do it again. The winner of this game, getting UW-Oshkosh, is almost as tough as the Linfield-Harden-Simmons winner, getting probably uh, Mary Harden-Baylor. Yeah. We'll, we'll learn more midweek about how the teams match up when D3Football.com presents its annual playoff capsules, complete with my favorite part, you'll know they're playing well if, to introduce you to all the teams you haven't followed all season. But North Central has a top 15 scoring offense, and remember, there are 249 teams, and the Johnnies are second nationally in total defense, so that'll be the matchup you want to watch. Team with the toughest path to Salem, Keith, it only seems fitting that it should be hard for Island teams to get to Salem in the Stag Bowl's final year there, right? It's, it's never easy. Yeah, it's hard to believe, though, that the defending champions have the toughest path. Harden-Simmons, which we have ranked fifth, then St. Thomas, Ranked fourth might mean that whoever the winner of that game is, and that that's a Saint Saint Thomas and and Mary Harden Baylor face each other. Whoever the winner of that game, uh, they may face an easier team in the semifinals than who it faces in the quarterfinals. No disrespect to Wesley, Brockport, or Delaware Valley, although I can't really disrespect some teams and then pretend pretend to say uh, no disrespect means it goes away. It's uh, shades of two thousand four, is what it is, right? Yeah, that's a that's a rhetorical question that doesn't require an answer. So uh, Good. Uh, here's a rhetorical question that does require an answer, at least according to the terms of our podcast. The road team most deserving of a home game or home team most deserving of a road game? Uh, road team most deserving to be at home has to be Harden-Simmons, right? There are probably one or two others that are also deservings, but deservings. One or two others that are also deserving. 
I'm going to leave that in. But I'd have to think Harden-Simmons qualifies as most deserving, just based on the fact that they were number two in the South Region rankings coming into the week. Mm. The home teams look pretty good to me, pretty much uh, across the board, Pat. Uh, But there's one that stands out. 12 unbeaten teams are among the 32 in the field. 11 are hosting playoff games, including Trine, Wartburg, and Springfield, who didn't necessarily have mighty strength of schedule figures or a great slate of opponents. Case Western Reserve and its famously bad strength of schedule is lucky to have even survived on Saturday to get to the postseason, so the Spartans probably aren't quibbling with being sent to Illinois Wesleyan in round one. The Titans are a better team by most any measure anyway, but surely someone in CWRU world is wondering why it's the only 10-0 team traveling in round one. Keith, that brings us to the end of this list of questions. I feel like um, I feel like we've come to the end of the stack of blue index cards. How long ago did you start using these in Around the Nation? I do not remember, but I would have to imagine it's in you know two thousand seven, six, eight, somewhere around then, where um, it just made sense. Or you know, I used to get carried away sometimes writing Around the Nation. If you remember reading it, <laughs> it would it would get really long. No way. Um, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> but it was also a way to just express some things about the bracket that um, were were more than just individual matchups and and not, you know, some kind of like macro ideas about it rather than these really tight zoomed in thoughts about how, you know, Trine was going to match up with Wittenberg or whoever was playing at the time, you know. Yeah, uh, because we'll do the micro stuff later in the week with the playoff capsules that you mentioned, and we'll do surprises and disappointments in Around the Nation on Thursday. Woohoo! Uh, of course, there were other games played in Week 11 as well. Uh, we still have some old rundown questions, or I guess some newer rundown questions as well. So let's hit that up for a second. Does that work for you? Yeah, sure. All right. Uh, for example, I have a hidden highlight. And for mine, I have to congratulate Illinois Wesleyan coach Norm Esch on his 200th career victory. Kind of buried in a ton of big news on Saturday. Titans win was important because it got them in the playoffs, but also important for the milestone win. He's 200, 102 and one in his career, ninth among active Division three coaches in total wins. Rick Giancola of Montclair remains number one, but uh, Mike Drass keeps gaining on him. And uh this year, uh, I'm not sure, of course, because Mike Drass is still coaching. He could gain on him quite a bit. Well, you get your pronunciation 101 badge button sticker for this week <laughs> for uh, for con- correctly pronouncing the Illinois Wesleyan coach's name. For my hidden highlight, technically, it was only hidden if you tried to sign in to ESPN3 and you don't have a cable provider. But what a great feature it was to see the Merchant Marine Coast Guard game. Uh, the Secretary's Cup highlighted on Saturday, complete with uniforms talked about on SportsCenter before the game. Every now and again, the worldwide leader throws Division Three a bone, and this year it shows well. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, I have a double take. Uh, a quick double take for me came Friday night when Westfield State not only beat but shut out Western Connecticut 18 to nothing. Why am I talking about these teams that 95% of you probably can't place on a map? Here's why. Western Connecticut came in at 7-2, and two, looking strong for a postseason bowl game. They had played a key role in the conference race. They were in it pretty much down to the end, and then crash. Tough way to go into the offseason, losing to a team that came into the, uh, came into the evening 2-7, and seven, getting shut out. My double take was a team that uh, went into the offseason on a high note. Rowan, which had scored just six points in its previous three games and just 30 during a six-game losing streak, finished his season by scoring 28 to beat Kane. But here's the part that made it a double take. The struggling offense gave the profs a 16-0 lead, but then the Cougars scored 27 unanswered points. 
That same Rowan offense then put together a 16-play scoring drive to close the gap with 324 left, then finished its season with a 10-play drive that ended with one second left, a touchdown, and a 28-27 victory. There was a highlight reel catch in there, too. Uh, the 4-6 and six season was a disappointing one for a once-proud program, but for an offense that hadn't had much to be proud of in weeks, what a way to head into the offseason. Are they just, like, sandbagging us for the previous 10 weeks? There is no way to know that for sure. <laughs> we could only try to research. My stat of the week, Keith, comes from the Alfred Hartwick game, where Alfred threw just one pass all day in a 63-21 win versus the Hawks, and that pass came from the punter. Meanwhile, Hartwick couldn't stop it even if it knew it was coming. Alfred ran for 627 yards on 57 carries, 11 yards a pop. And it's got to be a reason why you wouldn't even attempt a pass with your quarterback. It was this, uh, and it was their starting quarterback, Casey Boston. You know, that's the I had to dig into the box score to see the participation report just to know who actually started a quarterback. Yeah, that's an that's a really good poll for Saturday of the week. Uh, I'm impressed with that one. For for mine, uh, I'm going to keep it simple. You can't take points or your best plays with you into the offseason. Listeners will hear something later about the St. Thomas score and all the teams that went into the offseason lighting up the scoreboard. Twelve teams, however, limped into the offseason by getting shut out, including one you just mentioned earlier. And at least two more managed a mere field goal. Monmouth only managed a field goal in regulation. But since St. Norbert did the same, it turned out to be enough for a 9-6 overtime win in the Midwest Conference title game, which also put the Scots in the playoff t- in the playoff field. Uh, 97 points or 9 points, doesn't matter how you get in, just that you do. I was watching that game. Uh, it was, first of all, some of the worst video ever. St. Norbert was attempting what I think was a 50-yard field goal at the end of the first half. I couldn't tell whether it went through or not. They didn't show the officials. And then it was basically... a after about 45 seconds when everybody had walked off the field and they hadn't incremented the score on the scoreboard, I decided that he had missed that long kick. It was definitely long (laughs) enough. That was the only thing I could tell was that it was long enough. That's hashtag D3 problems right there. Every week we throw out there on Sunday nights a reminder that you can ask us a question on Twitter, which we will answer on the podcast. We got a ton of them. Oddly enough, it's a big day for questions. Lots of questions. We get lots of questions. Uh, The general question, which I've kind of distilled from multiple people, is what can be done about the playoff system? Uh, And this kind of takes elements from questions from at WC Pool and WM Andrew 10. And I'd like to suggest, first of all, I'm not sure anything needs to be done yet, but we need to start talking about what happens as we get closer to uh, uh, peak AQ or AQ-mageddon. We'll be at five at-large bids for a while, most likely. Uh, Pool B conferences are going to get converted to automatic bid leagues. Wow, I am really way down deep in the in the weeds here. Here's Let me back up and simplify this for a second. We have 25 conferences with automatic bids, and then we have two more in the pipeline uh, the American Southwest Conference will regain its automatic bid in 2018, and the new MAC will get an automatic bid in 2019. So we're going to be at 27 automatic bids and probably still five at-larges. Um, so that's what I'm getting at. I think the easiest thing to implement might be to increase the, the standard from seven teams to eight teams in order to get an automatic bid. Football would be a special case in this, but football is already a special case because we're we at a bracket that can't expand any further than 32 teams. I actually hadn't considered this, Pat, but it would eliminate the automatic bids from the 
CCC from the Liberty League and Empire 8, which becomes an Empire 7 next season when Buffalo State jumps to the Liberty League. Uh, the ODAC was just seven teams this season, but it already has plans to add Ferrum from the USA South, which would be left with eight, and Southern Virginia. Uh, the NAC adds Eureka to get to eight teams next season, while the MIAA adds Finlandia. The uh, CCC won't be eight teams until 2019 when University of New England adds football and Husson moves from the ECFC. Long story short, conferences are already protecting themselves against being up against it with just seven teams. So it wouldn't have an impact of but a few bids, but tell that to Concordia Moorhead, Wheaton, and UW Lacrosse, eight and two teams who could improve the quality of the tournament, frankly, if they'd gotten in this season. And that tournament as we know, is pretty much capped forever at five weeks and 32 teams unless the bracket somehow got really creative. Yeah, I guess perhaps the horse is already out of the barn on uh, eight teams for an automatic bid. And nine is a weird number, so perhaps uh, Division Three could incentivize 10-team leagues by giving them the ability to split into divisions and play a title game for Division Three purposes only. Uh, I feel like otherwise we ought to be considering play-in games, but the you know play-in games to get into the tournament between uh, champions of conferences. But the the calendar for football is already already so unyielding because uh, it's expensive to bring kids into camp earlier, so you can't start a week earlier, and you can only play one game in any particular week. As long as we fixed everything, just a reminder to send us a Twitter question for the podcast. You can hit us up at, at D3Football anytime between about 8 and 10 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday night, and we'll take the one we deem most interesting or most answerable or most worthy of discussion. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Keith, so many great rivalry games on Saturday that we could never talk all of them through. But I love the way the 6th Street rivalry ended. That's the Cross Street one between Pomona Pitzer and Claremont Mud Scripps. Chris Schielsa catches a 25-yard pass in overtime for Claremont to give the Stags the lead. Pomona then needs to convert a 4th and 7 to keep its drive alive. And what happens is Carter Oderman rolls out, throws to the end zone, where a pass bounces off the helmet of a Stag defender and into the arms of Pomona Pitzer receiver Kevin Massini for the score. Then the Sagehens' David Burkinski just gets his reception over the goal line on the two-point play for the win, and they walk off with a 29-28 victory in overtime. And that's one where if you don't see any of the game, you don't know the context of it, um, and then you just see the highlight, you'll still be amazed. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty cool highlight. Uh, regarding rivalries, Pat, this was also the year that a lot of the ones that had fallen on hard times because one program wasn't holding up its end of the bargain, a lot of those rivalries came back. Uh, RPI faced Union, which finished 7-3. and three. Uh, DePaul lost by one, as we mentioned, in the Monon Bell game, and both uh, the Tigers and Wabash finished 8-2. and two. Um, Ithaca won the Cortica Jug for the first time after a seven-year drought, but perhaps the most impressive rivalry return is in Division III's oldest, and it didn't disappoint. Williams blew a 24-3 lead, then won on a Bobby Mamarone touchdown in overtime. It was the freshman's fourth of the day. The Eves won the 132nd meeting of the little biggest game in America and finished 6-3 and three in a revival of a season. That kid is already a hero in Eafland, Eafville, Eafburg, Eafington. Can you imagine what else this guy's going to do in the next three years? It's it's too bad he won't uh, get to play in a bigger big game in America, you know, something out of conference or maybe something in week 12. But uh, what else was big on Saturday was the scoring all the points. St. Thomas scoring 97, including the last six in the closing seconds. 
I guess it's cool that a senior offensive lineman scored the final TD, but with seven seconds left, already up by 91. Uh, in addition, you got 83 points by Rose Holman, 82 by Laverne, 71 by Wheaton. And, and imagine if Occidental had fielded a team against Chapman on Saturday. I got a thought. Uh, TCNJ, after starting the season 0-5, including a loss to FDU Florham, finished by winning 4-5, including Saturday's 27-0 win against Southern Virginia, which uh, leaves the NJAC for the ODAC after next season. I feel the same about uh, about Southwestern, which finished 6-3 and in the American Southwest Conference, uh, as well as a couple of other teams that we've talked about before in uh, Milliken and Ithaca. Ferrum went 8-2, but now they step up a half step or maybe a whole step to join the ODAC next fall. And, uh, and I think hopes for better for next year for like teams that went 0-10, such as Carleton, Crown, Earlham, Kenyon, William Patterson. Uh, Willamette was 0-9 for the first time, so was Bowden for that matter. And uh, Whittier was 0-8. And yeah, I mean, for that matter, maybe Occidental, they were 0-3. Yeah, I mean, usually fortunes turn around for, for these teams uh, the following season or a couple seasons out. Eventually, they always do. In Earlham's case, it's the fourth consecutive 0-10 season for the Quakers. However, uh, they've lost 43 consecutive games. And one team, Pat, as you mentioned, that did not get a win this season, lost more than just uh, games on the scoreboard. It lost the opportunity to play them. So here's hoping Occidental gets back to fielding a full team and playing a full schedule next season. Keith, I have a ton of post-its on my desk uh, with notes I didn't get to use on the selection show, and so many of them are about key injuries to teams. Uh, Michael Whitley for Lakeland, Joe Germanero for Brockport, Rob Kuda for Case, Austin Rouse for W&J. And those guys, that are, those are just starting quarterbacks who have gotten hurt in the past few weeks for playoff teams. The, the query that pulls them out of the database, really precise. But all of those, uh, all of those guys are, uh, are either going to be gimping around or not playing on Saturday. And then we could talk about quarterback shifts at Mary Harden Baylor. Uh, changes the quarterback at Linfield, changes at Harmon Simmons. Uh, we could talk about guys who have come back, like Oshkosh running back Dylan Hecker came back this week. Uh, Monmouth defensive end Tom Lesniewski came back last week. Uh, but what I think this sets us up for, Keith, uh, is, uh, again, some more unpredictability. I think that there are going to be some places where we see things that we don't expect. I mean, I don't expect Lakeland to beat Oshkosh with Whitley at full strength. But in a lot of other cases, I, I think there's some games that could turn on some of these key injuries. Well, and, and week 12 is maybe, in some ways, it, it's the, the most exciting week of the year because there's that three-hour window, for the most part, where most of the games are going on. Everything kicks off at noon local time, so you watch the game that you're at or you watch the one that you're uh, at home or at your desk at work watching. Yeah. Um. And then, you know, another wave of games starts an hour later, and then there's that one West Coast game uh, with Linfield and Harden-Simmons. I mean, I love Week 12. It's the best uh, – It's it, I don't know if it's the best week of the postseason, but that window is pretty, pretty exciting. I also love Week 11 uh, because it's one of the best weeks. It's probably the best week of the regular season, and it wouldn't be a complete show if I didn't – walk back into week 11 a little bit in these rivalries and play Homer for a few sentences and acknowledge Randolph-Macon's uh, excellent halftime adjustments against Hampton Sydney. And really, this is only noteworthy because last year, the game turned uh, from a 23, a 24-23 halftime score into a 48-23 Randolph-Macon win. And this year, in front of the home crowd, 21-all at halftime, 
became 56-28. It's the fourth straight win in the series for the Yellow Jackets in six and seven years. And it's the kind of success against a rival that can keep a coaching staff in place for a while or get another coaching staff removed. And I'm certainly not suggesting that's happening in this case. But I think it's really uh, important at schools where the rivalry games are such a big deal that you are co- your coaching staff is successful in the rivalry game, even if it doesn't win a whole bunch of conference titles. Um, could I ask the court reporter once again to read back what I said last year about the halftime adjustments in the Randolph-Macon Hampton City game? <laughs> okay, no, maybe I'll maybe I'll pass. <laughs> Uh, one, t- one of those two teams is really good at making halftime adjustments. If I can add one final thought, uh, actually, I need to add two final thoughts. One second. You talked about uh, the great three hours or four hours of Division Three football. It seems like that is uh, completely tailored to having a whip-around show, and that's what we're going to do. If you saw the whip-around show that, uh, the, uh, that uh, Frank and uh, James Baker did, uh, for in the huddle for the East region in week 10, when a lot of the key East region games are coming down, we're going to do that, uh, with, with Frank and, uh, believe with Adam Turr as well for week 12. So if you're sitting at home and you don't have a rooting interest in a particular game, come watch all 15 of those, uh, early first round games with us. That'd be great. We'll get you more details and some things are still getting buttoned up and ironed out. Uh, with the NCAA, but I feel good enough uh, that's going to happen that uh, I'm going to mention it here on the podcast. Now, the actual final thought that I had uh, thought about finally thinking about off the field, just a quick reminder that uh, nominations for the Glardy Trophy are due at one o'clock Eastern time on Wednesday. And if you haven't thought about nominating your guy because uh, he's not a quarterback or running back, or because you can't get a letter of recommendation from your school's president, or you think your guy's GPA won't qualify, I have three words for you do it anyway. A letter from the president is no longer required. Uh, The J Club at St. John's really wants to emphasize that this is a football award, so don't feel like your guy has to have a uh, 3-4 or better. Just talk about how well-rounded he is because that's the whole deal. And, you know, a lot of the top quarterbacks are sophomores, so this might be a good year for another defensive player to uh, get a shot at the trophy or maybe another offensive lineman. So if you haven't been doing, if you haven't been thinking about doing this, do it. I'm, I'm just suggesting that you do it. That's all. I think I think you're I think you're right on too, Pat, because there are some years where the best player in the country is a no brainer or is a consensus. This guy is outstanding. And I don't think I think there are a lot of outstanding players this year, but I don't think there's one where you where you point to and you say that guy's got the Gallardi trophy locked up. So uh, so go ahead and uh, and and nominate. Uh, If you need one more piece of encouragement, I was going to say Mount Union doesn't seem to be nominating anybody. So that leaves the door even more wide open. How many Mountain Union players have won the Gallardi Trophy? I, again, research would help us with that. Keep an eye on the site uh, this week for more playoff coverage. We'll have the annual predictions column that I mentioned earlier that uh, Adam Turr will be heading up and around the nation. We'll have a final set of around the region columns focused on playoff teams and our team capsules, those team-by-team playoff previews. We're uh, hard at work on those, have been hard at work on those for more than a week. Uh, Meanwhile, we uh, expect to see coaching changes this week. We'll keep the coaching carousel moving as quickly as we get stories. SIDs will be getting an email from us about uh, nominating for All-Region and All-American. Coaches, you'll be getting an email from us with uh, a few off-season items, such as uh, posting for open dates or posting jobs or, you know, the whole D3 talent thing we talked about earlier. I've got some more information and email coming to head coaches on Monday. 
And this was Around the Nation podcast number 184 for the week of November 13th, 2017. Thanks for listening and uh, keep an eye on the rest of that coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts because that will help other football fans find it. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thanks to our guests, Darla Kirby, as well as uh, Frank Rossi and James Baker for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter. Use the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook as well. And follow D3Talent now on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And hashtag your highlights, whether they're on the field or off the field with the hashtag D3Talent. We have all sorts of content on d3football.com each week and a bunch more this postseason. So we're still going to do play of the week on Monday. And uh, we'll still do this around the region columns and around the nation columns. We'll do quick hits on Friday. And Keith, what do we do with quick hits for the postseason? Oh, we change it up. Less uh, less chatter, more score prediction. That's right. We uh, Each of us predicts the score of every game. So the goal of that is to give you some idea of whether the consensus is, is it going to be a close game? Is it a split decision? Does it, uh, does not everybody agree on who's going to win? Is it going to be a high-scoring game or a low-scoring game? That's the that's the goal there. So you see that on Friday, and then of course our, our wall-to-wall game coverage on Saturday, and uh, then snap judgments on Sunday. No more top 25 until the end of the season, but uh, the podcast doesn't go away because now the podcast never goes away. Oh, and it actually gets really focused on uh, on some some the fewer games there are, the more time we spend on each one. Keith, do you have we have like. Uh, Nine more minutes to talk. What do you want to talk about? We have to get to an hour. <laughs> yeah, we're a, we're well under an hour. That's weird because I felt like that was a, a long process, and and games were going to be kicking off pretty soon. <laughs> it's been a super long week, super long weekend, and I'm just ready to kick back. I know this is maybe not uh, your cup of beverage, but uh, I'm going to celebrate with a cold one. This was a this was a busy one. Well, I'll get me a cold sweet tea and we'll call it even. Sounds like a plan. Another job well done. Another uh, bracket actually should be pretty interesting. Uh, after, you know, we always spend a, a little bit of time quibbling with it or um, marveling at it, depending on, on how it goes. Uh, but usually you get to middle of the week and, and you start really thinking about, man, these are going to be some good games. Um couple of the games won't be so good, you know, because uh, low seeds have to play high seeds. But I think we got we got a lot of competitive games actually on tap. So it should be fun. Uh, this is not on tap. This is a bottle. I would expect you to know this. Uh, I certainly have no idea what, what beer is cool and not cool in Minnesota. I'm drinking a Wisconsin beer, but that's just my personal preference. So Ooh. I know, I know. All right, ready? I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, underdog that has the best chance of winning. An underdog being a road team? Yeah, unless... Yeah. Johns Hopkins. If I, I'm just going right off the top of the... That was, yeah, that's, I mean, that's fun that way, right? How about... Uh, I don't know. Do I like Huntington at Barry? Who do I like? Thinking about that, too, yeah. Hard, I mean, Harden-Simmons at Linfield, I guess. True, in a in a 12-6 game or something. Oh, who knows? Uh... Best game that you probably won't watch very much of. 
<laughs> like here, I, I'll I'll clue you in on this one. Uh, Monmouth at Trine. That's the first thing. That is exactly the first thing I looked at too. Um, probably be a good game though. Yeah, it probably will be. Um, or could be. Could be. Who knows? A, a, exciting game. I think that's a. I think that's a back and forth game with a lot of points. Um, so that would definitely be enjoyable. I suspect I probably won't watch a lot of uh, Frostburg Wittenberg. I think I won't watch a lot of St. Thomas Eureka. <laughs> well, that's not a good game that you're not going to watch a lot of, though. I'm guessing that's true. That's true. I just went. I went down the took a left turn on. Not going to watch a lot of. Uh, I'm, t- I'm not going to watch so a lot of for 1200 Alex Brockport Plymouth State which could be over or for that matter Springfield Husson which will be about a two hour 15 minute game between uh, John Smith and everybody who rushes the ball for Springfield you think it's so it's actually gonna be a longer drive to get there from Maine to uh, Western Massachusetts than it will be to actually have the game take place uh, that you're gonna spend more time on the Mass Pike than you are at the football game mm-hmm a lot of uh, interesting that there are a bunch of Ohio teams in here. None of them matched up with each other. Mountain Union game at Mountain Union, a game at Wittenberg. And I guess not a game at Case, but uh, but uh, I thought I thought there was a chance that that some of those teams would play. It was uh, in putting together the bracket, and since you know this year we picked the same thirty-two teams that the committee did, that meant that we were trying to bracket the exact same teams, and we had a. A really difficult time kind of bridging the east-west gap. The east-west divide kind of usually runs across western Pennsylvania and into Ohio, where you kind of divide the 16 easternmost teams from the westernmost teams. And typically, you have to cross a few of them over, um, and you can only take them 500 miles, of course. So, uh, you know, they sent Case Western to Illinois Wesleyan, which is similar to something that we had looked at. And uh, they sent Frostburg to Wittenberg and and stuff like that. So it, it was it's difficult to do if if not a lot of if we don't have an at large team from the OAC, then the bracketing actually becomes a little bit more difficult. Or if Thomas Moore doesn't make the field, Thomas Moore kind of fills in that middle for us and center has filled in the middle for us because they're in that kind of geographic middle space too. I, I thought the thing that made it uh, interesting is that um, Barry and Huntington, which would be geographic outliers yeah. to some degree um, in the in the deep south. Uh, they matched up with each other. That's Alabama and Georgia, um, and that and then you had you know the two Texas teams and the two West Coast teams, and so that those that kind of makes an obvious pod because that's the travel pod, yeah. and then they kind of just had to stick a game in there, and it, it uh, oddly became St. Thomas and, and Eureka. So. That could be a really brutal run for, uh, for say, let's just say Mary Harden-Baylor wins. They play the Linfield Harden-Simmons winner. Uh, then St. Thomas, I guess, has to go down to Texas, potentially. Uh, it, it could be weird. But it would be an interesting matchup if, say, you know, St. Thomas plays Barry in round two. I didn't have that one queued up. I don't know if you did. <laughs> well, it's an interesting question, too, as to whether St. Thomas or Barry is the higher seed true we didn't talk seeding at all on this podcast and we usually uh or we often go down the uh the seeding rabbit hole but it, it was uh i guess the matchups aren't too wacky this year so you, there there isn't too much um outrage about a two playing a, a three when it, it should be a two seven you know um yeah i guess the linfield harden simmons game as, as i've sketched it out seems to be a two four but we should be getting the final regional rankings tomorrow, so we'll have a better guesstimate of what the actual seeds are. Do they normally release the final one? 
Uh, it's been this will be the second year. It, it's been a big fight. Um, basically, there were some sports that did not want to do it and did not want to do it. And the ones that we generally deal with, like uh, men's basketball and football, were actually fairly uh, interested in doing it. Baseball also. But the NCAA wasn't going to let them do it if everybody didn't. Now, you know, basically the championships committee, the overarching championships committee said, yes, you have to re- release your final regional rankings because um, transparency. So I guess if you stick with the podcast for the extra nine uh, minutes of babbling, you actually learn something. Yep. Go get your sweet tea. All right. I'll do that. And happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it.